Well, Pliny had a problem, not just his name. Pliny had a problem, and he wrote to his boss, uh, who was the emperor at the time, and he said this, For the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. There's so many, there's this problem involving numbers and numbers of people. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered. You hear that? People of all ages, of all ranks, and uh, uh, of both sexes, they're, they're in danger. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and the farms. Pliny's worried that there's this thing that started in the cities and has gone to the villages and the farms. It's urban and rural, but it seems possible to check and cure it. It is certainly quite clear that the temples, which had almost been deserted, have begun to be frequented, that the established religious rites long neglected are being resumed, and that from everywhere sacrificial animals are coming, for which until now very few purchasers could be found. Hence it is easy to imagine what a multitude of people can be reformed if an opportunity for repentance is afforded. Pliny's writing to his boss, the emperor, and uh, Emperor Trajan, and he says, there, there's this thing happening in the cities, and people are deserting the temples, and they're re- deserting the religious rites, and I've kind of put effort into trying to revive the religion of our ancestors. And, and if I could just convince this mass of people who've deserted the gods of our fathers to come back, we could save a whole multitude of people. Well, what's the superstition that he's talking about? Anyone want to guess? It's Christianity. Uh, in the short time, Pliny and Trajan lived in the first part of the second century, so between 100 and 150-ish A.D., um, Christianity had spread and metastasized all across the Roman world and beyond. Whole, whole multitudes of people were told or were finding the finding the the peace and joy and hope and love that we find in Christ. It was shaking the empire to the studs. And Pliny is terrified that it will change everything. And maybe some of us today are longing for such a growth and revival in the church that it would shake this society to the core that everything would be changed, that more and more people would find redemption and healing and forgiveness, that more and more families would be made whole and more and more marriages would be reconciled and more and more souls would be saved and more and more young men would take on responsibility and more and more children would grow up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. We're longing and hoping for uh, the kind of day that, that you only hear about in the history books where the church would just explode. And why hasn't it happened? Why hasn't it happened? I would submit that one reason that that hinders the, the advance of the church, the growth of the church, is that there are so many charlatans and snake oil salesmen and televangelists and people trying to use the faith to get personal gain that the very idea of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is watered down and murky at best. Christians, if we are to reclaim our witness to a watching world, if we're to be the kind of people who preach the gospel effectively and with power, that we experience deep repentance and we see many people come to the freedom and joy that is found 
in Christ, I would submit it is absolutely essential that the world knows what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So how does that happen? How does the world come to terms with what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ? I think in this passage, we're given one way we, we can know, one way the world can know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I think we're given one way which the world does not know. Now, perhaps this will be surprising. That there's, there's one way that this passage outlines that is not a sure indicator if someone is a follower of Christ. And yet one way in which this passage communicates that the disciples of Jesus Christ will be known for what they are. So what is the way in which they're not known? What is the way in which the disciples of Christ are, are not known? The, the imperfect test to discern who, who is a true disciple and who's not. And this, this might be surprising for you uh, to hear, but the imperfect test... The, the unreliable way to tell if someone is a disciple, the way that does not reveal if someone is a true disciple of Christ, is, this is going to be surprising perhaps, perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, you, you see in this passage, Jesus is talking uh, with his disciples, and he's, it says that he's troubled in his spirit, that he's, he's shaken, that um, he, he's He's, he's, he's just this bout of melancholy hits him. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you, one of the disciples will betray him. And so the disciples start looking at one another. They're not sure of who he's talking about. And Peter and, and, um, Peter and John kind of have this back and forth. And uh, we, we know from the Gospel of Luke that at the Last Supper, they're arguing about who's superior anyways. And so um, Peter Peter motions to John, who's sitting closer to Jesus, and they're all sitting around at a, at a low table on, on cushions on the floor. Uh, that's, that's how they sat in those days. And so Peter motions to him, and, and so John leans back and, and, and says with a, a whisper that can be heard, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answers, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So Jesus takes this bread that's in his hand, and he dips it into olive oil, or to, and he gives it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, you know Judas. We've seen Judas several times in the Gospel of John. We've already been told in chapter 6 that he is a devil. We've already been told in chapter 12 that he cares more about the money bag than uh, about anybody else, that he is self-righteous and indignant of others. Uh, we already know that he is weak-willed. We already know he's being tempted by Satan to betray Jesus unto death. And so Judas gives up the last pretense of resistance and reaches out and takes the morsel from the hand of Jesus. As if to indicate, yes, I'm really on your side. It's, a, it's, that final, it's almost the final act of betrayal that Jesus can give to, to indicate that they're at peace when there is no peace. So he takes the morsel and it says that Satan entered into him. And Jesus says, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, the disciples are like a golden retriever, no attention span whatsoever. <laughs> so they say, now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Why not? I don't know. Some thought, well, Judas had the money bag and Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he went out immediately and there's this ominous tone, it was night. 
Well, that settles it, doesn't it? That Judas betrayed the Lord and he failed the Lord and that Satan entered into him and he gave into temptation and he was not obedient. And therefore, that's how we know who a true disciple is. That settles it, doesn't it? That someone would be so greedy and so selfish and that they, they, they couldn't, that they couldn't uh, even resist the pull of 30 pieces of silver? Well, that, that should settle it. Shouldn't that tell us who a true disciple is if they can resist sin that way? Well, not so fast. Look down at verse 36. Simon Peter, it's always Peter. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? He's responding to something Jesus said in verse 33. We'll talk about that in a second. Jesus answered him, where I'm going now, you cannot follow me. Again, Jesus already said that. Attention of a golden retriever. But you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? And then he has this moment. You can see his chest extend and his, he grows three inches. And he, you can see his voice deepen, that tone of utmost seriousness and sobriety. I will lay down my life for you. As if to say, see all these other fools around the table? I can tell you which one's going to betray you in which order, but I'm not. I will lay down my life for you. I am for you. I am not going to give up on you. I am here for you, Jesus. Come hell or high water, I am not going to let you down. I'm not going to fail you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to turn you over. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the the rooster will not crow, till you have denied me three times. The alarm clock won't go off. You won't even eat dinner, that that it'll be the wee hours of the morning, and you will have denied me three times. Now, notice at this moment, what is really so different from the outside between Judas and Peter? Both of them deny him. Both of them put on pretense Both of them talk a big game about whether or not they're his disciples. What's really so different between these two people? That both of them would claim to be followers of Jesus. Both of them deny him in his hour of need. Both of them run away from him. Both of them give in to sin. Both of them let him down. Both of them abandon him. And yet we know that in the case of Peter, there's redemption. That Peter will, Jesus will later say to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Perfect obedience, perfect fidelity, perfect faithfulness is an unreliable test for whether or not someone is a disciple of Christ. And that should make your soul sing because you are not a perfect disciple right didn't jesus just say you need to let me wash your feet 
You need to let me wash your feet. You need to come back to me again and again. You need to come back to me and confess your sins to me and find forgiveness and find reconciliation and find restoration. You you need to keep returning to me, disciples. You've been forgiven, but you need to continue to return to me to restore this fellowship, this communion that we can have. Didn't Jesus just tell them that? Imperfect, there's no such thing as perfect obedience this side of glory. None of us get to heaven without a limp. And so if you are looking for a disciple that is absolutely perfect, that never screws up, that never lets Jesus down, that never fails him, that never abandons him, then you are looking for the wrong kind of person. Because that person doesn't exist. And that is good news for us. That's good news for me to know how many times that I let my Lord down, how many times I fail him, how many times I say I'm not going to do something and I do it, and yet the, the Lord is so kind and his mercies are new every morning and he provides a way to restore fellowship with him and I can continue to walk with him. The idea that perfect obedience is the only true marker of a true disciple, or even a true marker of a true disciple, is a lie from Satan who wants you to feel discouraged and ashamed and guilty when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Now, maybe you would say, well, doesn't, doesn't it say elsewhere in the gospel, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, and everyone who denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. Of course it, it says that. Of course the, Jesus himself says that in the gospel of Matthew. But I, the, the best way to understand that is that it's talking about the whole of somebody's life. It's talking about the whole trajectory of their life. We believe in progressive sanctification, that someone progresses and gets more and more holy as they live their Christian life. But even that person doesn't reach perfection this side of heaven. Jesus, uh, the, gospel of John, or gospel, the author of the Gospel of John, when he writes his letter of 1 John, will, will say, if anyone tells you, if anyone tells you that they do not sin, they are a liar. And the truth is not in them. Christians, this is good news for us that this is not a good way to figure out who's a true Christian or not because that person doesn't exist. Now, of course, I don't say this to say, well, you should just go out and sin endlessly and show no restraint. Obedience brings blessing. And the wise life produces good outcomes. And the, to, to live a life that is pleasing to God is more joyful. It's more joyful to follow Christ. It's more, it's more joyful and uh, joy-filled. And, and, and it's more glad and happy and content to walk with the Lord and to not let Him down and to not abandon Him. Of course, I'm not questioning that. I'm not saying you shouldn't pursue holiness. Pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews tells us. I'm just saying you're never going to get there completely this side of glory. And that's okay. Because we believe in a God who shows mercy and a God who shows forgiveness. 
the God who welcomes in the lost, God who makes a way for those who have failed him to be restored. And so if you're here this morning and you feel burdened and weighty, you've done something that you regret so deeply, you are not too far gone for the love of God. That's why he came, to wash our feet, to wash us so that we are pure and clean in his sight. So, so no, that's not a good way to figure out who's, who's a true disciple. And the question is, what is the true way? How, how can we know who, what is a true disciple? How can we know who a true Christian is? What does a true disciple of Jesus Christ look like? Well, Jesus tells us. It says in verse 31, Now is the Son of Man, that's how Jesus refers to himself. We've seen that throughout the Gospel of John. Glorified, and God is glorified in him. We've seen throughout the Gospel of John that that's a reference to his cross. So Jesus, when he says, now is the Son of Man glorified, he's indicating that in less than 24 hours, he's going to go up upon the cross and bear the sins of the world, that he's going to drink the cup of God's wrath for our sin, that he's going to pay the penalty, he's going to spill the blood, so that you and I can enter into the presence of God as those who are forgiven. He's going to be condemned in our place. He's going to, the Lord will be pleased to crush him for the iniquities of us all, in the words of the prophet Isaiah. That's what he's referring to. That this is When he says, now is the Son of Man glorified, he's saying, I'm going to ascend onto the cross and the Lord is going to uh, crush me for the sake of y'all. And then it says in verse 32, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. What's that referring to? Best guess, that's referring to the resurrection. So God says, if God is glorified in him, if God is glorified and magnified, if his love and his mercy and his holiness are displayed on full display on the cross, then God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. That he will raise him from the dead. That he will resurrect them. That he will resurrect him. That he will give him new life. That he will not abandon him to the grave that he will walk in the garden as the beginning of the new creation. Little children, he goes on to say, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to you, to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. So not only will the Lord resurrect him, but he's going to go back to be with his father. He's going to ascend to the father. We'll see a little bit more about that in chapter 14 next week. He's going to go up onto the throne with the Father. And that where, where, where he is going, um, the disciples cannot come, at least not at this time. So Jesus is not going to be around to gather his little disciples. That They're going to have to find a new way of, of revealing that, that they are his disciples because Jesus has work to do. So Jesus says this in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now, let's just walk through that slowly. When he says the word new, um, that is not to say that this kind of thing has never been heard before. Actually, as we just saw in our responsive reading from the book of Leviticus, and if you don't know your Bible, that's okay. But Leviticus comes before John. In the book of Leviticus, 
um, it tells us that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. So we've already seen that we ought to love one another as God has loved us. It's already been, it's already seen. So when it says a new commandment, what, what, what does he mean by the word new there? Well, I, I think, again, this is talking about the new covenant. It's, it's God's reestablishing the way that you and I can relate to him because we broke the old covenant. We broke the old agreement by which we can relate to the Lord. And so God has to reestablish that agreement. He has to reestablish the covenant. He does that through Christ, through the work of the Christ on the cross, who reestablishes a way that you and I can come before the Lord, that he dies for our sins and rose again for our life. That, that's what it's referring to when it says a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Okay, so how should we love one another? We should love one another just as I have loved you. So, so what is he referring to? Well, he just he said it says at the beginning of chapter 13, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That Jesus loved his disciples by engaging in costly personal sacrifice for them. That Jesus expended himself, gave up himself out of his love and affection for his disciples. That's what it says. And that he loved them to the end. That he loved them in a way in which their best efforts to love one another will always be limited and hindered. And yet, and yet Jesus commands us to try to imitate his love that he's given us. So, so just as Christ engaged in costly personal sacrifice and commitment and covenant for his people, so his people are to engage in costly, costly um, covenant sacrifice. And the question is, well, who are they to love? Who are they to love? It says it three times, three times in these two verses. One another. You love one another. So you all start to love one another. If you have love for one another. Now, one another does not mean indiscriminately every person. Now, let me explain what I mean by that because I, this is a careful thing. I am, Matt is not saying that God does not call us to love other people, all people. In fact, actually, Galatians 6.10 says, do good as you have opportunity to all. So certainly we're supposed to love all. I'm not saying the Bible, the Bible doesn't say that Christians aren't to love all. The Bible doesn't teach that. We've already seen in Leviticus that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. I'm just saying that's not the point of this passage. I'm not saying the Bible doesn't teach that. Of course the Bible teaches that. But we've got to pay attention to the words because the words are what God wants us to hear this morning. New commandment I give to you that you love who? One another other disciples, other Christians, that you love other Christians. That's, that's what this passage is teaching. Jesus' commandment is that we are to love other Christians. That we are to engage in costly commitment and covenant with one another. Maybe you say, well, that's just one verse. That just seems obscure. Okay, well, let, let's test that. John 15 says two different places, this is my commandment, that you love one another. So I have loved you. Just a couple chapters later, again in John 15, 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. And John says it again in 1 John. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John three eleven. 
For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 1 John 3.23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 4, 11 and 12, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, other Christians, other disciples, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And maybe you say, well, John says things that are obscure all the time. That can't possibly be what it means. Okay, the words of Jesus, Mark 9.50. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how are you to make, make it salt again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Well, maybe you say, well, what does Paul say? Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12.16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Romans 13.8, no one, no one, anything except to love each other for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Romans 14.19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Romans 15.5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. In accord with Christ Jesus, Romans 15.7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Roman, or 1 Corinthians 12, 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Galatians 5, 13, for you are called to f- freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Galatians 5, 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, Add to that Galatians 6.10, as you have opportunity, do good to all, but especially to the household of faith. Ephesians 4.2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians 4.25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others, one another, more significant than yourselves. Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old self with its practices. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, may the Lord make you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, now concerning the brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been haughty or have been taught by God to love one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, therefore encourage one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. See that 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good for one another and also to everyone. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Now maybe you say, well, what does Paul know? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. James 4, 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. James 5, 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to one another 
and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 1 Peter 1, 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Likewise, you are younger. Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The, the New Testament teaches that one of the primary arenas where we should show the work of God in our lives is in relationship with other Christians. That if you would take upon yourself the name of Christian and you do not have love for other Christians, that you are using that word in a way that does not cohere with the New Testament. Certainly, Christians are to show love for all. I think that's clear in these passages as well. And yet there's a particular way in which our love takes shape, and it's in our love for one another. Pliny, that same person that we started the this, this sermon talking about, this is what he says the earliest Christians were known for. He says, They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet. What did they do wrong? Well, they met together on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by an oath, a.k.a. covenant, not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return or trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again, to partake of food, The New Testament teaches that the primary place where we show our fruit of Christian life, the primary place, is in our relationships with one another. And here's what Jesus is saying in John 13. It is absolutely essential for your Christian witness. It's absolutely essential for your Christian witness that you would love one another. That if you want the world to know that you are his disciples, if you want to show them what true discipleship looks like, if you want, to, you want your, your friends and your family who don't know the Lord to know the Lord, that you must love one another. And of course, that begs the question from when, when, when the world sees Christians who are deeply committed to one another, who, who love one another, who, who are committed to this kind of costly, sacrificial community, who covenant together, it, it begs the question, why would anybody do that? To which the only answer can be, because he loved us till the end. We love because he loved us. 
the, the love that we show one another is just the the vaguest, just the 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 just the 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 foggiest picture of what he has done for us. And overlooking our faults and passing over our sins and spilling his own blood that we might enter the kingdom. Why do Christians love one another? They love one another because he has loved us first. And the only way, the only way for people who are in our lives who don't know Jesus to to understand that is if we have love for one another. So I think if we're going to apply this, I think if we're going to apply this passage, I, I, I just need to say a couple of things. Number one, beware of a haughty, proud, petrine spirit. Beware of asserting and trying to prove to others how genuine of a Christian you are by your words. That's what Peter does. I will lay down my life for you. But in just a few hours, he's going to be indistinguishable from Judas. It's kind of funny as a pastor. Um, oftentimes, you can stereotype the reactions that people have when they find out you're a pastor. Sometimes they just try to shock me, you know. They'll just let out, like, the, the most shocking thing they can think of. But I worked in the restaurant industry. That does not scare me. And I got brothers. I mean, that's just not scary. But one of the other things that will happen is the same person who was full of all kinds of of profanities and blasphemies and suddenly becomes the most saintly, holy person. But that doesn't prove that that person is a Christian. What what proves we're a Christian is if we have love for one another. And so if you see, if someone was to ask you, why, why would you, what would you point me to to understand the love of Christ? And you start to feel the need to puff up your own reputation. I would be aware of that. And be cautious about that. Because the Bible says what marks out true Christians is their love for one another. I'd also say this. If you are here this morning and you feel the pressure and the weight, this is number two, of of trying to conform and trying to obey, if you're like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son who, who would say to the father, I've worked all this time for you. Would you come to Jesus and let him take that? Let him wash your feet. Jesus does not expect perfection out of you. He knows you can't give it. The the expectation is that you and I would return to him again and again and confess our sins and find forgiveness. Certainly Jesus progresses us. He helps us to grow in holiness. No one's doubting that. No one's denying that. But Jesus knows our frailties. He knows that we're not perfect. And he would invite us, just like he'll invite Peter, in just a few short days, to to be restored, to be reconciled. And so if you're here and you just feel weighed down and broken, you just feel weighed down and broken, you feel guilty, you feel like you've let the Lord down again and again, The good news about this sermon is that none of us gets to heaven without a limp. None of us gets there perfect. So 
feel free to come before him and let him wash your feet. And if you don't know what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, you've never done that before, please talk to me after the service. I would love, there's nothing more joyful than to see someone come to know the Lord. Please talk to me if you don't know that. I'd also say this, numbers three and four. Those who are in your life who, who are not Christians, those who are lost, who maybe they're, maybe they're interested in Jesus and they're not quite sure, maybe, maybe they're totally rejected. They need at least two things from you. I say at least because I'm sure there's more but they need at least two things from you. First, they need you to have a church that is healthy, that displays this kind of love well. They need you to have a church that you can point to and say, I can see the love of the Lord in this place. And I would say part of the tension of preparing the sermon is I think that our church does do this very well. I think our church is a, a place where people show this kind of concrete, tangible, sacrificial love. Certainly there's ways for us to improve and grow, but I believe our church does love one another well. So if anything, this sermon is meant to say, this is, we are doing well at this, but we should continue to increase and progress in these things. But they, they, you, those who are lost in your life need you to have a church that is healthy. And those who are lost in your life need you to engage deeply in it. They need you to, to engage deeply, to press into loving one another and being loved. I'd say, number five, what that means is that we must be a church in a place that is able to show this kind of love when it counts. In other words, that we must be a church in a place where conflict is handled well. All churches have conflict. Not, it's not a secret. All churches do, just like all marriages do. It's, it's a normal part of church life. The question is not, does it exist, but how do we handle it? Are we able to, to speak the truth in love? To be able to, to confront and receive that confrontation? Are we able to urge one another not to get their act together? Not to conform, not to prove that they're not to not to fix themselves but to urge them towards repentance that's what we want we want them to we just we've just said nobody gets to heaven without a limp we've just said nobody's perfect we've just said that nobody is uh we've just said there is no such thing as the perfect disciple so so we're not trying to urge those in conflict towards being perfect We're, we're trying to urge them towards repentance trying to urge them towards finding life and hope in Jesus Christ. And that we would, in the words of Paul in Ephesians, forgive one another. That we'd be willing to forgive each other. That we'd be willing to show reconciliation and restoration when, those, when that happens. That's what makes for a healthy church. That's the kind of church that, that people look at who don't know the Lord and, and say, I, there's something about that place. I'd also say this, number six. This is why, as a church, we, we, need to, we need to practice church membership well. We need to practice church membership well. Maybe you would say, well, church membership is just kind of a formality. It's kind of stuffy. It's just, like, why does that matter? Well, it matters because people stand up here, and the church makes concrete, tangible promises to those people who enter into church membership. And the people who are entering into church membership make concrete, tangible promises towards others. That church membership is one of the ways, not the only way, 
But one of the ways in which we display the love of God in Christ towards us, towards one another. That's when we commit to these people and say, I'm here for you. Come hell or high water, I'm for you. I'm not against you, that I'll be in your life and you'll be in mine. That you are my people and I am yours. We make those public commitments on purpose because we're trying to display the love of God in Christ. And can I just encourage you, if you are interested in church membership, please talk to me. Please, please, please. I would love to. I think we're going to do maybe another membership class soon at some point. I don't think I've told the elders that yet, so maybe not. But um, if you are interested in that, on the back bookshelf, there are two little printed pamphlets. One says our, our confession, and one says flock life. I'd encourage you to grab those and read them and talk with me about them. Uh, that introduces you towards what membership in this place looks like. But one of the reasons that we try to practice it well and we try to love our members well is because Jesus told us to, to do good to all, especially towards the household of faith. So I'd say church membership is one of the ways in which we concretely work this commandment out. And finally, number seven, in times of brokenness, in times of sorrow, in times of hurt, we need to bear one another's burdens. We need to be a place where burdens are bared, where, where not just physical burdens, certainly that, but also emotional burdens, where, where we can be a place where we can put our arms around one another and help carry one another as we all pursue the holiness of God in Christ. And of course, that will lead to conversations that are hard, but that, those conversations are out of love. Ephesians says that we, by speaking the truth in love, grow up into mature manhood. There is no maturity without speaking the truth in love. It doesn't exist. That, that we ought to grow in love. Proverbs says that lying lips conceal hatred. That's why Colossians told us just a second ago not to lie to one another. That we ought to be a place where we're willing to talk to one another and, and build one another up and we ought to bear one another's burdens and we ought to encourage one another and offer, and offer forgiveness and offer restoration. But that also means that when we are in those places where we need our burdens borne, where we need someone to lift us up, where we need someone to encourage us, where we, we need someone to... to put their arm around us, that we ought to know this is a place where that happens. This is a place where it's okay to need help. This is a place of people where it's okay to say, I am not okay. I need people in my life to encourage me and to pray for me. This needs to be a church and a community where, where people know that they will be cared for because our witness depends on it. And our, our witness with those who do not know the Lord depends on it. Now, I, I just want to say this, just to close. I kind of already said this. I think that this is an area where our church does an amazing job. So many of us have said that this is a church community that never experienced before. A place where, where people actually like being with one another. Not just are with one another. They actually like being with one another a place where people have, have those kinds of relationships where they can share their burdens, they can confess sin, and they, they can put their arms around one another, they can encourage one another. I, I think that this is, a, this is a unique community, and I'm so glad the Lord has put a church like this and a place like this and a time like this. 
I, I think this is something that our church does particularly well. And I look forward to seeing the ways that the Lord, as we move into this section of the Gospel of John, because if you think this is the last time this is going to come up in John, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I think this is a place, I'm looking forward to the ways that the Lord continues to work in our life as a church. As we take these things to heart and as we grow in them and put them into practice. And so my, my plea for you today is, is to be thankful for the ways that you already see these kinds of things happening in our body. And to look for ways in which maybe the Lord is calling you to press in deeper so that you too can be part of the way that that the love of God is displayed so that you too might answer those who don't know the Lord because he loved us till the end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have loved us towards the end, that your son has loved us till the end, that your spirit has loved us towards the end. Father in heaven, we pray for us now. You would encourage us and lift us up. Father, we pray that we would be a church in a place that takes these commandments to heart. And that we would be somewhere where people feel free to have their burdens carried. Father, would you convict us? Would you grow us? Maybe if we need to press in more. Maybe if we need to find people here to be honest with. Maybe if we need to take those steps of membership. God, I, I, I trust that the people who are here hearing this sermon are people that you want to hear this sermon. And so I pray that this would be a time that is altogether encouraging, but that we'd also take this to heart and seek for what concrete ways to grow. Father, we love you so much, and we praise your wonderful name. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.